Hi, welcome to this episode of Helix and Gene podcast, uh, where we cover all the open-ended questions and answers on medical wellness and this wonderful field of health, wellness, and nutrition. Uh, today, we have a very, very special guest on the show today from Southern California. She's woke up early and to join us today. Uh, today, we have Dr. Felice Gersh. Dr. Gersh is an award-winning physician, board-certified in both OBGYN and integrative medicine. Medicine and a renowned national and international speaker. Her formal education background includes a bachelor's degree from Princeton University, a medical degree from the University of Southern, Southern California School of Medicine, residency training in OBGYN, and fellowship training in integrative medicine from the University of Arizona. What I love about Dr. Gersh is she has really dedicated her life and her center to women's health and all of the different things that go on um, and how unique it is and how poorly managed it is. Uh, and she focuses on women's unique rhythms and hormones, emphasizing on the impact of nutrition, the time of eating, fasting, fitness, stress management, emotions, sleep, and a whole slew of other things that we're going to get into today. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Felice Gersh to our interview. Welcome, Doc. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. Thanks Excellent. for inviting me on. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This is uh, really an honor. And uh, there's so many things that we want to get into with you today. But first, uh, you know, the first thing I really want to get into is who you are, how you came about to be where you are today. Just give us a little background story so our listeners can really get to know who you are. Sure. Well, I grew up in a household in New York on in suburban Long Island, and I was raised to believe, and this is probably good um, background for anyone who wants to get their kid to go into a certain career, <clears throat> that there were only three career choices for me, and they all related to helping people. I could, well, that's how it was viewed, because yeah. <laughs> one of them was being a lawyer, because that was viewed as being helpful, and some people look at it a variety of ways, but we need lawyers, <laughs> and or a teacher or a doctor. So I went through the menu and I said, you know, I, I really like science and I think I would love to be a doctor. So um, I went through the the, uh, the whole process. I, you know, In college, I majored in history, but I always took all the prerequisites I needed to apply and get into medical school. And uh, then I went to medical school. And while I was there, I just really loved obstetrics and gynecology. It, I, I love the adrenaline rush I got from doing those deliveries. And I really liked the technical aspects of being a surgeon, but I love that I could have continuity of care and see my patients throughout their lives, that it wasn't just a you know a hit and run kind of do a surgery and you never see them again. I, they actually became part of really my extended family, working with patients over the years. So it really felt like a perfect fit for me. And I went into it. And then when I finished, I was one of the very first women in OBGYN. And it was really a male field at that time. And when I looked for a job, I thought, oh, you know, I'll get an employee job. I never thought about being an entrepreneur myself. But I was really, although I actually graduated the first in my class, and I went around and that was not really valued. What they wanted to know was, was I going to take time off, have babies, I wasn't reliable. It's like, I'm very reliable. But, um, you know, in spite of, um, you know, doing so well, I wasn't really looked at as very desirable. So I said, you know what, if they can do it, I can do it. So I went out and I did a two-day course given by the California Medical Association on how to establish a medical practice. And I actually 
set up my own practice and I decided, you know what, I'm going to be the boss of my own my own business and actually decide how I'm going to take care of patients. So I did. I opened my doors many years ago and then I never looked back. It was mine. And I was able to, from the very beginning of my practice, add in what I called my ancillaries. Although I didn't know anything about them myself. I had no training. I always knew. I don't even know exactly how I knew, but that there was more to helping people to be optimally healthy than just doing surgeries and prescribing pharmaceuticals. So I had, from the very beginning, I had a Chinese medicine practitioner. Um, I also had a nutritionist, a psychologist, I had biofeedback specialist, so and a massage therapist. So I added all these people into my practice and then I just did all the routine things myself until about a dozen years ago when I decided it was my time to give up obstetrics because of my circadian rhythm disorder, you know, getting up and doing all those night deliveries and such. And so afterwards I had a little bit more time, maybe more sleep. And I demanded for the first time in my entire career that all the pharmaceutical reps that came through my office, and there were a drove of them in those days, and they had to show me their original studies that were used to get their drug approved by the FDA. And as I went through the studies, I was shocked. I said, you know, this almost is no deviation from the placebo arm. And, you know, look at all the array of side effects. So it suddenly, I think I... I looked at what I was doing and I didn't want to keep doing it. Mm. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fascinating. I mean, it's like you hit that aha moment in the middle of you, you know, you were creating this whole wellness center and not even knowing it really. And then all of a sudden you stepped into it. it. I just knew it. (laughs) That's great. Okay. So how many years ago was that, that you decided that, you know, you wanted to stop just doing the regular OBGYN and then really just branch into this whole wellness aspect because you were looking at it with a different lens essentially? Well, it sort of evolved over 10 to 12 years ago when I said, you know, this this isn't really what what I thought I was, you know, like giving pharmaceuticals isn't really doing what I had really hoped they would do. It it really hit me when I looked at the drugs that were being prescribed for what was called overactive bladder. And I found that the pharmaceutical that was the bestseller had statistically one less visit to the bathroom in 24 hours to take a drug that increased serious constipation and even dementia. So I said, like, this is crazy. So it was about 10 to 12 years ago. And I started going on my own journey. I started taking courses with naturopathic doctors. I didn't even know who they were. But I thought, you know, this is really an interesting approach. You know, the idea that you give the body what it needs to heal itself. I mean, we just, it sounds so natural. And yet at that time, it sounded so completely revolutionary to me to even think such a thing, you know, let the body heal itself. I thought I was the healer. I looked at everything upside down until then. And then I took courses with functional medicine doctors and I just was going, but randomly, I had no mentors. I had no real agenda. And then I ended up in Portland taking a course with naturopathic doctors. And I was one of the only two MDs in the room. In fact, the only other MD was one of the speakers. And I went up to her after her talk and I said, Dr. Lodog, you and I are the only two MDs in this room of MDs. And I am totally lost. I don't really have a path. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just like going in circles because I 
I don't know where, you know, I don't have direction. And she said, come and do the fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona. And it starts in two weeks and talking to you, I know you're qualified, go fill out the application. So I flew home from Portland that night, filled out the application. And two weeks later, I was in Tucson and I did the two-year fellowship in integrative medicine. And that was another you know, there was no way to ever turn back wow. after that. That's an amazing you know, journey. So, yeah. and it's been so a true woman then. of action. I love that. See, see what you wanted to do. See the changes that needed to be made. You know, wasted no time, and you know, just kind of tackled what was in front of you, just to. And that's that's really what entrepreneurship also is about, right? It's about understanding. You know, being being able to see what's presented to you in front of you, recognizing it, and going, "This is right for me," and, and also moving forward. Also looking outside the box, yeah. because a common yeah. a common theme both with. Felice and also the other guests that we've had on is like pharmaceuticals are a small part of the of the equation. There yes. is so much more to healthcare and to provide wellness and that sort of Absolutely, holistic yeah. holistic effect of the whole body of, of of care that it goes beyond what a lot of people think, you know, doctors do. I agree. You know, Felice, one of the things that really excited me when I was reading, you know, your stuff was I love seeing traditional MDs taking on non-traditional methods. And, you know, and, and, and it's so refreshing to hear some of these things that you're looking into, which, you know, I really want to, I want you to tell us more about from, you know, where your center has evolved into and, and exactly what you guys are doing at the moment. So the, the, the audience can get a better understanding of exactly all of the different measurements and approaches that you're taking towards this wellness approach in California at the moment. Oh, I would love to go over all of that. It's a totally different way of approaching healthcare for women. Unfortunately, the conventional OBGYN has such a narrow view, but that's true in all of the conventional medical fields. The body has been broken down into all these different organ systems, and they don't see how they interact. It's, it's so, when you look at it from our perspective, sort of an integrative functional medicine perspective, it's hard to understand how there could be any healthcare pr practitioners who don't see the body as a whole. They see them instead as pieces here and there that you just sort of operate on separately. And so I've looked at how to really work with the whole woman, look at all the different aspects of her life and her health. And so how we can be really adjunctive to her journey because we are there both as health coaches and as prescribers and as diagnosticians. So there's so many hats that I now wear to help my patients to really become optimally healthy in every organ because it's that is what the body is. You're either altogether whole or not. It's, we have, it's so amazing when you look at it. They now have discovered, for example, if you, if you remove one kidney, the other kidney somehow knows it and doesn't feel happy. We now have found out that the uterus, which has been looked at as nothing except a holder of babies, that if it's removed you know, surgically early before menopause, that it actually affects the cognitive function of the brain. Ah. There's this amazing communication that goes on between all these various organs in the body. And the conventional world just hasn't gotten it yet, but that's you know what we do in my practice is just put it all together to help women to be optimally healthy, no matter what their age. I love that. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about is, you know, you and I briefly spoke off the air about women and postpartum and something that, you know, uh, you know, a lot of women 
once they have kids, their body changes. Hormonally, it changes. The way it functions, it changes. If they've had C-section, scar tissue can change the way that, you know, depending on how, you know, it's done on the inside, it can change so many. There's so many variables involved. And I think oftentimes a lot of women, you know, they hear this answer of, well, that's just what happens after you have kids and there's no turning back and pregnancy changes your body. And, you know, to an extent that is true, it does. But, you know, there are really good methods in if you're, you know, if you have the knowledge and if you have the know-how to actually go after figuring out what's going on, what the root of these causes are and how we fix them. You know, I, I think there's a lot of knowledge there and, 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 you know, someone like you can really tell us a little bit more about what happens to the body after pregnancy and why is it that so many women suffer from it like that? And why is it that, you know, what can we do to help that, to get them nutritionally back to, and sound and, you know, feeling good about themselves again, mentally and emotionally? Well, it is, as you alluded to, it's very complex in that the human body, the female body goes through these amazing ups and downs and changes in the hormones. And hormones are really the foundational messengers of the body. They're what tell the different cells what to do. And when women are pregnant, they have a very, very different set of sex hormones. Like instead of having the dominant estrogen being estradiol, the placenta makes a different estrogen, estriol, as the dominant estrogen. And we now know that as soon as a woman becomes pregnant, very, very shortly thereafter, the microbiome of her gut actually changes and it becomes actually more inflammatory and she develops leaky gut, which sounds like what on earth? Why would nature do that? That's not healthy. But pregnancy is basically sort of a, a mixture of inflammatory and anti-inflammatory at the same time, because it's so important that women who are pregnant start putting on weight. That's why women, even if they don't change what they eat when they're pregnant, they will typically start gaining weight. And it's fat and it's storage fat because it's necessary. Everything evolved for successful reproduction. So in pregnancy, a woman has leaky gut, and that develops more inflammation to drive some insulin resistance. And ins when you have higher levels of insulin, you're going to start storing and making fat. And that's why women who are not really foundationally healthy can go over the line, where they cross the line, and they develop gestational diabetes. So there's all these really dramatic changes, and the immune system changes because Estriol is predominantly an estrogen beta receptor agonist. So it actually stimulates what's called the beta receptor of estrogen, whereas estradiol is a blend of the two and has a lot on the alpha receptor. It turns out if you have a lot of beta, you downregulate alpha. Well, it turns out all that estriol is, like I mentioned, predominantly on beta. The immune cells of the body are divided up between the receptor being alpha or beta and the mm. innate immune cells, the ones that respond to the initial attack by an invader like a bacteria or a virus, those are predominantly alpha. So what happens in pregnancy is the high estriol with the beta receptor down-regulates alpha. So you're down-regulating your immune cells that are designed to do the first attack. And that's really clear because you don't want your immune system when you're pregnant right. to attack the fetus being, you know, actually alien tissue. So it's all of this is it's going amazing on what the in body pregnancy. does, right? Yeah. 
Wow. It is amazing. Yeah. The immune system is altered. The gut microbiome is altered because of the difference in the alpha and beta. The way the brain works is altered. So it turns out, remember, you're high beta is now down-regulating alpha. And mm. alpha is predominantly in the brain in the hypothalamus, which is what regulates appetite. So it's designed perfectly huh. to get a woman who's pregnant to start having a higher appetite, to eat more, and then to become a little bit more insulin-resistant because of the leaky gut and the higher level of inflammation, to alter the immune system so she doesn't attack the fetus. And the high levels of estriol also work with the beta receptors in the vagina to allow the vagina to become super stretchy, you know, because every yeah. time you think about it, I mean, this is like, like, I always think of the snake swallowing the, you know, the, the pig, you know, it's like, how yeah. does this snake swallow a pig? Well, how does a baby get outside of Right, I've always how wondered it, that. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, we become like super stretchy. Right. And, um, you know, if you took a baby and put it in a woman who wasn't pregnant by some, you know, like witchcraft, right. and then you said, now push out the baby, but she hadn't had all that estriol to prepare the altered microbiome ah. of the vagina to make it super stretchy. You know, she just ripped his smithereens. So we are incredible. So I mention all of this so that it's clear that I you go from it. being non-pregnant and then you're pregnant and everything in your body is really changing. You become stretchy elsewhere, like your ligaments become more stretchy and that yeah, allows sure. the pubic area where the, the pubic symphysis, which is fixed to actually become slightly a joint and actually mobile just a little bit to allow a little stretching so a baby's head can actually fit out, you know, and be delivered. So all these incredible things are happening during pregnancy. And then what happens after the baby? I was just going to ask, how long after pregnancy <laughs> yeah. does it take for the body I mean, to it, maintain that homeostasis again yeah. and go back to its original It sounds state. like a fascinating scientific makeup and then like a really kind of a crazy breakdown to the body and, and, and where is the recovery well, of that how does that work well see let we have to reframe it so it's an alteration not a breakdown okay. but Better but word, you're yes. absolutely <laughs> right if you have a woman and so many women these days have what i say is little reserve and resilience because they enter into pregnancy in the first place often marginally nutritional, you know, status, mm. you know, where they, they, they're often anemic, they have low iron, they really don't have the stores of their fat-soluble vitamins, look at their vitamin D level, they're like, oh my gosh, they're usually tanked like around 15 or 10 or something, so they, they really go into pregnancy with marginal health. That's, you know, the unfortunate state of what what it is. Their fitness isn't so great. A lot of women have been pretty much sedentary. And, um, you know, often, what what's the state now? 70 to 80% of people in our country are overweight or yeah. obese. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, it's you know, crazy. women are going into pregnancy and they're not particularly, what you would say, optimally healthy. So when you hit the delivery stage and afterwards, when you're postpartum, that is a very challenging time for a woman's body. That's why during pregnancy, in spite of the baby pulling all the, the nutrients out that the baby needs, which can be really depleting to the mom, yeah, sure. the body is doing everything it can to restore it by building fat stores, by you know increasing appetite, you know, and so forth to try to get that woman to be really 
optimally healthy throughout the pregnancy, but that's not happening in our society the way it should. Women are often eating processed food. I mean, every time I read these articles about where the vast majority of calories are coming from the average American's diet, and they're saying like 80% is from ultra-processed food. You're like, what is that all right. about? You know, people are not, even like pregnant women, they often don't understand the need for eating lots of plant-based proteins. For example, it's been shown that the musculoskeletal system develops stronger and you know more optimally with plant proteins and they're not eating plant proteins they're often eating the confined feedlot animals with god knows what's in them you know and um so you're saying so, that so so I, I so this is really fascinating because so we're getting into this but and before we get into the post you know after giving birth so leading into the pregnancy essentially this is another indication that if your body is properly trained in its nutrition and vitamin deficiencies leading into the pregnancy all of the technicalities you just explained that the female body goes through in that hormonal change and process could really be prepared for with proper nutrition and supplementation ahead of time if you understand this process correct oh absolutely that's why i'm so focused on preconceptual huh, that's preparation okay. and counseling you know we look at the levels of the toxic load that women carry like oh my gosh sure, yeah. you know, phthalates and bpa and pesticides and so on so we want to really get as much as possible, those types of body um, poisons down as much as possible. And we want to get the nutritional status maximized. So, you know, we have to look at the, both the macro and the micronutrient status to really optimize, optimize the woman's health long before she actually conceives. We have to really prepare, and, and nature would do that naturally, but in our society now, right. we have to work at things that used to be sort of automatic, like buy organic food. You know, Before, there was no option. Everything was organic, right? right? right. So now yeah. we have to make conscious decisions not to buy ultra-processed food, to buy lots of fruits and vegetables and make them organic, to get fitness. You know, we, we, People can sit for... 12 hours a day, and then they think even if they go to the gym for one hour that they're making up for it, but we now know that's not true. Right, that's that right. You can't, you, you can't, you can't you know, account for all those sedentary hours by just moving for one. So we have to get people to get movement into their lives to actually get those 10,000 steps a day, and that's background noise. That's not the actual exercise. That's that's just the, the basic movement that people should have. It's very hard in our society to accomplish that. But women go into pregnancy, and they often have really a very poor musculoskeletal system and nutrient deficiencies. And unfortunately, a lot of that is also related to the highly prevalent use of oral contraceptives, which we now know, is, well, it's used by 90% of women and it does not allow optimal development of the musculoskeletal system. And so women are going into pregnancy and their ligaments, their joints, their muscles and bones are not really quite where they could be and should be. And that can also affect you know, how women are during pregnancy and thereafter, because a lot of people don't realize how really metabolically active bone is and muscle. They're not just part of movement. They're actually part of the metabolic homeostasis regulation system of the body. 
Sure. So, so just to touch up on that a little bit, you said about you know bones being metabolically active, and and, and that's a really that's a great statement that I, I don't hear a lot of, and and I think it's something that really should be fo- you know focused on a little bit more. You know, one of the things that we do on the East Coast here is you know as somebody is dropping weight at a fast pace, we put them through what we call corrective exercise training, where it's essentially spine and joint stabilization done through non-impact moves sequence properly to get their body to understand the shock of all of a sudden all this weight's coming off how do i fix my equilibrium and how do i get the proper nutrients and stabilization through nutrition and exercise in my bones and i think pregnancy also you know is is it it, it relates to that and you know by understanding bone metabolism is what you're talking about can you just talk a little bit more about how you know you look into that and what are some good avenues in terms of foods and supplements maybe that someone can pay attention to in that area? Oh, absolutely. So bone, we now know. And by the way, the analogy between massive weight loss or rapid weight loss and if completing a pregnancy and you know having all that weight come off and nursing the baby, they're really wonderful analogous types of situations. Yeah. And the musculoskeletal system is at risk in both scenarios. Sure, so right, I'm, I'm exactly. so excited by what you said. <laughs> And in terms of bone, so bone is an endocrine organ. When I was back in medical school so many years ago, we were taught very, very basic things about what makes a hormone. We felt like the pituitary gland and the ovary and the adrenals and so on. Well, it turns out that the gut is probably the biggest endocrine organ and bone is a major endocrine organ. It makes a hormone called osteocalcin, which is very key to glucose regulation and homeostasis. So we don't always think, in fact, most people never think about bone having any relationship to osteoporosis and also to diabetes. They only think of, well, osteoporosis but no, it's that. And of course, it's also about diabetes. That's like a whole function of bone that most people know nothing about. But bone is also involved in cognitive wellness. It turns out that the the hormone osteocalcin also relates to brain function. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have adequate bone, which of course is now, you know, really an epidemic, young women are often in an osteoporotic state because they're not developing bone due to poor nutrition, lack of exercise, and being on oral contraceptives or similars. And so we have this, you know, really tremendous problem where we have so much prediabetes and diabetes in this country, and we're not recognizing that the role, the incredible role of bone. And then we have so many people now suffering from problems with focus. I hear brain fog. I'm sure you hear it too. It's like yeah, brain sure. fog. It's like Absolutely. epidemic Mommy brain, and also the whole thing, mood right. disorders. So we have so many depressed and sad people and something like a quarter of all women are on antidepressants. So this is also related to bone mass. Like people are not thinking about this. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, uh, it's it's amazing because a lot of people talk about, you know, we talk about osteoporosis, right? And so much resistance training that you need for osteoporosis, you know, uh, osteoporosis, right? For me, one of the things that I've noticed in, you know, in, in that is a lot of stabilization training done under tension actually is actually a better form of training for most people for osteoporosis than actual just movement and resistance training because, 
like you said, it stimulates certain neurons around the joint where, you know, the, the, the muscles actually get a better stimulation and the joint, cause the joint really, you know, the joint moves in certain motion, right? And that's it. Your muscles are essentially flexion and extension. So when you force the joint under specific tension to hold itself and, you know, after performing a specific amount of resistance and movement, for osteoporosis and bone health, I've noticed that it, there's a tremendous, tremendous difference and then just doing regular strength training. Oh, well, those are wonderful pointers. And so many of my friends, they, they, they hit a certain age and they go out and they have like a bone density and they're told, oh, you know, you have severe osteopenia or osteoporosis. Right. So they right. say, I'm going to go get in shape. And without any training or any warm up or any, right. not That's having exactly anyone right. help, they go out and they start doing all kinds of things. And the next thing, you know, they're having knee replacement right. surgery. That's exactly I, mean, I'm not, I wish I were kidding, but yeah, this no, is, I'm really I, seeing this I'm because right. they don't have the... They, they don't have the health and strength of their ligamentous and tendon system. And then they go out and they're just doing things that they were just totally out of shape. And, oh, it's just sad that the injuries that people inflict upon themselves when they're actually trying to, to turn on a new leaf. No, this is great. So, uh, you know, I mean, we can sit here and talk about this for hours. This is so fascinating. I have, I, I, I have a question yeah, though, yeah, about because um, you mentioned bone and the gut. You know, yeah. the microbiome in the gut, which I'm incredibly interested in because you hear it often. It's almost become a buzzword now, leaky gut syndrome. Like you hear it. I, I've heard it. Yeah, you hear and it all I'm, the time. I'm so curious as to what your um, your ideas are about it and your perceptions of, about what leaky gut actually is. Well, we have so many different organs that can be leaky, but the gut is, of course, the, the biggest one that, mm -hmm. that can be leaky. And what that really really means is that we have these interfaces between our internal body and the external world. And these are typically epithelial lining, like they're single layers of these epithelial cells. And what is amassed around these areas are immune cells. So we have our immune system, our innate immune system lined up with our mast cells, and, and they're really the first line responders. And then we have macrophages sort of standing by and so forth. And this is all designed to protect us. So we have these barriers. And the junctions of the cells along these barriers are very tightly connected. They're not completely um like it's not a solid barrier. They have little bitty junctions that are open, but they're there to be a little bit open to allow the immune cells, like the dendritic cells, which are like the little antenna cells of the immune system to sort of test what's going on. And they have their little receptors called toll-like receptors that can tell what bacteria are in the neighborhood. They kind of, they're just sort of testing what's going on. And they have to put their little fingers between these junctions. So they need to have a little bit of space, but they should be pretty tight. But what happens is when you have assault on these epithelial linings, these interfaces between the outside world and the inner world, where our inner world is trying to be protected from invaders like bacteria and viruses and parasites and fungus and so forth, that things have been altered. Now, in the gut, you can have this alteration of the epithelial junctions or what we call the, you know, the, um, the barrier function. And then when it's broken or we call it leaky, it's impaired barrier function. So that interface is damaged and the invaders can actually get in 
which is not what's supposed to happen. They're supposed to be kept out. So when you have the wrong food that you're eating, when you're eating at the wrong time, which is one of my big things is about everything is circadian. Right, right. Which, pre- which, which we, I want to talk about next, the circadian and Everything, rhythm, right. you name it, it's circadian. So if we eat at the wrong time, and we know that people are doing crazy things, eating in the middle of the night even, like, oh, you woke up, I'm having a snack, you know, drinking a sugary drink. 24 seven, like they're just always, you know, putting something in their mouths. So that you know, that has calories in it, and often no nutrients. So we have this dysregulation of the gut microbiome by feeding it the wrong foods by starving it by poisoning them. I mean, we didn't know how important our microbiomes of every every area of our body has something growing. There's nothing sterile. And all these microbiomes are critical synergistic creatures with our own cells and we know that we need to have healthy microbiomes and the gut microbiome is is in the colon is the biggest one that we have in the body so without understanding its significance you know we've poisoned it by taking right. tons of antibiotics and all the chemicals that are in our food and we starve them because we eat ridiculously low amounts of fiber in our diets compared to what we were designed to eat. And so we're starving them, we're poisoning them, and then we're getting them very confused because we're feeding them at all the wrong times. And, you know, they're not getting the polyphenols, which they need, which actually have like a magic dance with the microbes. So you end up with the wrong microbes. So you don't have this synergistic relationship with the lining cells, the enterocytes, to actually create the proper short chain fatty acids, these nutrients that feed the the lining cells, especially butyrate, that's one of the short chain fatty acids. These are the fermentation products that are supposed Mm. to be made by the bacteria, but they have to be fed the fiber and they have to be the right arrangements and fed at the right time. Everything has to be right to make them. The engine of their cells has to be turned on and we're not doing that. And it also seems like the gut is working, I mean, it's almost working like your, your body's second brain. You know, it, yeah, it's such an important yeah. regulatory system. Oh, it's well, it's, I'm, I'm it's so amazing. glad you mentioned that because it is very, very messed up that second brain. So you not only get the well, the impaired gut barrier, where because you don't have the right mucus production and you don't have the right cells, the, these lining cells start to separate, and that's what they call leaky gut. And then the the toxins and bacterial particles and different contents of the gut can actually pass right through the between those junctions and into the body. And one of the things that's actually a major contributor, which I didn't mention, I'm so glad you you did, is what's called the enteric nervous system, enteric meaning gut and nervous system, of course, being nervous system. So the brain, the nervous system is called the CNS, the central nervous system. And that similar nervous system of the gut, which is incredibly critically important and complex. It's what keeps the whole peristalsis, which is an amazing thing, you know, that every organ in the GI tract does exactly what it should, when it should, to keep the food moving along at just the right rate for digestion to occur and then for elimination to occur and all those things. And that's all controlled by the enteric or gut nervous system. And that relies on a lot of things being just right as well, including hormones. And one of the key hormones is actually estrogen that helps to maintain a healthy enteric um, nervous system. And we live in a world filled with endocrine disruptors, you know, we mentioned like BPA and phthalates and pesticides and heavy metals, all these things can interfere with proper estrogen function. 
And then, of course, when you have changes in hormones, like in, in women who are going through menstrual cycles and sometimes birth control pills and similars and pregnancy and then postpartum and their estrogen levels are like going all over the place, that can have a significant effect on the enteric nervous system. And it actually correlates with the brain through all the vagus nerve, which is actually more like a big finger of the brain coming down that innervates a whole bunch of things, including the heart and all the GI and the organs and, and okay. the bladder you, and you, so on. You, and you, that whole feedback system can easily become sort of out of joint and create a lot of both it's bi-directional, so it can affect the gut and give you things like irritable bowel syndrome, and that's really dysfunction of the enteric nervous system. And then you can also develop a lot of other bacterial problems in the gut. And then in the brain, that can give you anxiety and depression because it's bi-directional. These two nervous systems really talk to each other. So I, I, I just, I, I have to, I, I'm, first of all, I, I'm so fascinated and, and I, this incredible explanation this complete explanation that you're giving this breakdown of exactly how things work and one thing you touched on that i rarely ever hear anybody use is the vagus nerve right and and it's something that i think is the most vital cord to how our entire internal system works and we have never looked at it till recently and this is something that you know in the holistic world the you know the shamans and the buddhists and and you know for ancient for years and years the, the the Hindu priests have been talking about this vagus nerve and its connection within the chakras and how it moves and now from a scientific standpoint we're actually starting to see that oh wait this thing does exist this thing does connect this thing does create a specific measurable scientific energy that it radiates through every single one of what we call chakras which are actually real points organ wise inside the body and and we're actually starting to see that this this thing really works. I'm very happy to hear someone like you use that term because I rarely ever hear people touch upon the importance of the vagus nerve and, and how it works and what it does. And I think that's one of the most important things in that circadian rhythm that you talk about, right? Oh my goodness, yes. So the vagus nerve, like I said, it's they call it a nerve, but I really because it completely is separate from the spinal cord, right. I really can I really think of it as a big finger of the brain just reaching down and touching, oh, literally analogy, touching yeah. all of the organs, including the microbiome, because there are actually receptors on the vagus nerve for the short-chain fatty acid butyrate. And it's circadian. The short-chain fatty acid receptors and so on are actually circadian. So the vagus nerve is very circadian, and it's very involved, of course, with the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, yep, the autonomic right. nervous system, which is extremely circadian. For example, at night, what should happen? Our temperature should go down, our pulse should go down, our blood pressure should go down. These are all parasympathetic mediated events. But when people have circadian dysfunction and hormonal dysfunction, they often go together, then you will have what's called non-dippers. Instead of the blood pressure going down at night, it stays the same or even goes up. And people who have that have dramatically elevated risk for developing strokes. So, the, and this is all working through the, the vagus nerve. That's why 
uh, the vagus nerve being connected to all these organs like the heart. That's how come you could do breathing and stimulate your parasympathetic nervous system and do meditation, guided imagery, and slow your heart rate, help lower your risk of having like atrial fibrillation develop, which we know is like, oh my gosh, such an epidemic develop anxiety, you know, that type of thing. So it works, but also all the organs. So we know the bladder has innervation from the vagus nerve. And so many women have irritable bladders these days, overactive bladder and so forth. And a lot of this can be controlled through mind-body medicine, which people in the conventional medical world are still poo-pooing. And this is real medicine. This has real effects that can really change the whole dynamic of how the body's working. So can you really quickly, uh, while we're on the subject, talk a little bit about the aspect of, you know, we we talk about traditional medicine, right? In, In terms of figuring out there is a symptom, treating the symptom with, you know, the proper usage of, you know, those pharmaceuticals that are out there used responsibly, and then figuring out the root of the issue when it comes to more of a, you know, holistic as well as a functional medicine approach. Um, and I know you're somebody like like us who believes in not one or the other, but the, you know, the proper usage of both in terms of the overall aspect of health and wellness. So can you just give us a little example, maybe of a patient or, or anything of how it works when, you know, a situation occurs and, you know, you have to say, okay, I have to treat the symptom first because otherwise there's, I won't have time to figure out the root, right? And then after, you know, in how that works together and, and how you go about that type of an approach to kind of connect the world of traditional medicine with more of a functional medicine standpoint? Sure. Well, one of the most common symptoms and conditions that face women are migraine headaches. And I'm sure uh, everyone knows someone who's had migraine headaches. So if somebody comes in and they're in the middle of a migraine or they've been having migraines, you can't just say, oh, I wonder what the root cause is. You really have to do something to help them deal with these headaches. So I've looked at a lot of the different things that can be done to help reduce the onset. And, And some of these actually do get to the root cause, and that's looking at like nutritional deficiencies. Like you can take someone who's actually having a migraine and give them a high dose. Obviously you have to, within reason of like B6 and magnesium, and you can sometimes just knock it out right away. Hmm. You know, you have to get on it. And now we know that migraines, for example, are related to this amazing new discovery, which I just love to talk about as well, which is called the endocannabinoid system. And so you can actually also help can with you, the can you headache symptoms. Break down what that by is, giving, the endocannabinoid system? Oh, just because most people are not going to know what you're talking about. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, the endocannabinoid system is like the most amazing case of what you might call reverse engineering because cannabis um, and and marijuana is in the family of cannabis sativa and so is the plant hemp, which is really what I utilize is um, hemp. And so these particular plants work in amazing ways on a system in the body that nobody knew what it was, but they named the plant was cannabis. And there's actually evidence of use of cannabis 
as a medicinal plant going back about 4,000 years. I mean, that's all we know. It probably goes back further than that. You know, don't never underestimate how smart ancient peoples were right. in terms of figuring out how to use natural products to, to help health. And it's really amazing. And this particular plant went back at least 4,000 years. and But nobody knew how it worked and go, going all the way up until, oh, like, 19 in the 1980s. I mean, we're talking pretty recent. And it turned out that it was discovered that we have this own system in our body and it's moderated by what are called lipid mediators. It's a whole new world of it's not just amino acids and proteins that are creating signals, but actually fatty acids, you know, fats. So it's a, a whole new understanding of how the human body works. And so they discovered that there was this system in the body that works with fatty acids, and they named it after cannabis because they discovered that the way that cannabis works is in some way through this system of lipid mediators, and so they named our own system after cannabis. Ah. So they called it endo for within ourselves and cannabinoid after cannabis. Cannabis. Ah. So it's really (laughs) the discovery that this amazing group of plants called cannabis sativa actually work on our own body's receptors in various ways that we're just actually just scraping the beginnings of of understanding of how this whole system works. Fabulous. And it turns out that these lipid mediators are about everything in the body. So I call them like the workhorses. So they are actually doing all kinds of things and they're taking direction from examples like from from hormones but they're very interconnected with the autonomic nervous system and they were originally was thought to be only receptors which the, the first group that were called CB1 receptors were in the brain and then they thought CB2 the new set of receptors that were discovered were primarily on immune cells we now know that that's True, but not true, because uh, yes, they are in the brain, and yes, they are on the immune cells, but there's actually a blend between CB1 and CB2, and that they're actually on every organ, and it's really heavily, guess where? In the reproductive system. So, like for example, in females, there are endocannabinoid receptors and the production of endocannabinoids in the uterus in the tubes, the fallopian tubes, in the ovaries, and it works with the placenta, and it works with the way implantation occurs. So these endocannabinoids are critical to reproductive success. That the body is like one giant <laughs> symphony orchestra. It really yeah. it, it, it's, it, it, it's it, amazing it's so, how it's so amazing. It's I, the most you know the more you learn about it, the more you realize how much we really haven't scratched the surface how much there is because we only discovered the first endocannabinoid, which was named anandamide, which is after the Sanskrit word for bliss. <laughs> because they, uh-huh. they recognized that it made people feel kind of good when they um, had this particular receptor stimulated. So, but that, you know, the year of that was 1992. So that's, that's how early, so fairly or, recent, know, how, yeah. recent, how recently yeah. we've discovered our own endogenous endocannabinoids. Well, you know, so it, it, it's really a whole new way of looking at the human body. You know, it is, and it's not because here's the thing. Like, I think the, the discoveries that we're talking about are more in the scientific measurable world of what we as humans and our scientific minds will approach and accept based on you know scientific studies over time but if you look at this like you said 
these shamans and, and these ancient guys, they've known this stuff for 5,000 years. It's in a lot of these scriptures, I know, because I read a ton of that stuff myself on my personal time. So, you know, it, it's, it's a part of what's really helped me understand the human body from a scientific standpoint today. It's, it's that deep-rooted spirituality of all of these things that you just mentioned that have been in use and utilization for thousands of years. So, you know, I think it's really good to live in a time where we're finally seeing this merger of, you know, of, of thought processes and studies and everybody kind of figuring out, hey, you know, there's not that many differences. You know, these guys have been doing this for X amount of years. We're just finding the terminology and the scientific sort of say um, explanations behind how and why it works. So, you know, I, I think it's just a fascinating time to be in this field and, and, and to understand, you know, medical wellness as a whole. And, and speaking of which, I just want to jump to one thing I really want to talk about. Um, you know, you and I spoke about your involvement with, um, with how you got involved with the company Prolon and in terms of, you know, um, the mimic fasting, because I'm very interested in, you know, I, I'm somebody who does intermittent fasting constantly. Um, and I was very interested in, you know, uh, how you got involved with them. If you can just give us a little explanation of, you know, what that process is, what fat mimic fasting is all about. Um, I think it's something really, really good for our audience to really understand and how that relates to what we're talking about today in terms of the female hormones and how we can use a mimic type of fast to help better regulate everything within the body. Oh, well, this is one of my most favorite subjects. And it's such a perfect sort of segue from what you were just talking about with the ancient Wisdoms, you know, even before we could put a label to it or identify a receptor, the ancients understood how to use natural medicine and they understood how to work with the body. And fasting is really very much aligned with that philosophy because ancient humans evolved when food was not constantly available, right? And so right. they <laughs> went through periods of a little bit of feast and famine. And humans, like all creatures on this planet, adapted to survive and not having food present all the time actually was then accompanied by an evolutionary trend towards optimizing health in that environment. So of basically having food and then not having food. But we've gotten so away from this whole thing with the constant eating and so forth, which is so harmful to people. And I, I always innately knew that you should not be eating constantly. But unfortunately, a lot of misguided but you know well-meaning people in the medical field started telling people that they should be eating like every two hours. I'm sure right. everyone's heard that. Like yeah. you have to maintain your insulin level and right. your blood That's sugar. Right. So you have to keep eating. And it's like I just like I would say even <laughs> yeah, it's like I'd say from the beginning. It's like I know there's more to helping people than just doing surgery and giving drugs. So I want right. to do other things in my practice. And I just, in my heart, it's like giving people food all day long. That doesn't seem like reasonable. How would people have survived? Why would the human race still be here if you had to survive to be healthy by eating almost all the time? Well, that's so, just one of the when, misconceptions, right? You hear like, oh, the caveman ate every two hours. No, the caveman used to hunt and uh, they sometimes they wouldn't have enough food for a week. They didn't eat every two hours. I'm like, I, 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 I always think, I'm like, wait, what are you people talking yeah, about? Like, they, where would they keep all that food? Right. You know? So it, it's like, 
was just so shocking. And I said, this doesn't make sense to me. So when I was approached, what happened was there was this new venture, you know, capital investment with USC to look at creating um, a company based on the brilliant research of the that was coming out of the Longevity Institute, which uh, was under the director and still is under the directorship of Professor Walter Longo. And so like all brilliant um, people, their universities recognize their their wisdom and their talents and their and they want to help to create something that is usable, not just in the lab, but actually for society as a whole. So the research on what was called the fasting mimicking diet, which is eating food that flies under the radar of the nutrient sensors of the brain. So you get the benefits of fasting, but you also get the benefits of eating and you actually get to eat, which allows actual usability. Because if anyone has tried to prescribe actual fasting to a large population of people, you'll find that you get maybe 1% compliance because people (laughs) just, you know, they like to eat too much. And so to tell them stop eating for four days and just drink water, you will be lucky if you get, you know, a few of them to even do it for one day. So this was designed for both benefit um, of actually getting nutrients, but also that you get people to actually do it because it's a huge difference in your compliance rate when you do a fasting mimicking diet where you get to eat but still get the benefits of fasting versus not eating at all. And so it's just sort of, I think, the most brilliant thing ever. And I got approached by a marketing company representative who was designed, who who had designed a research program to like a marketing research program to find out if there were doctors out there in the community that would be interested in implementing a fasting mimicking diet in their practice and then learn about all the benefits that would accrue from having such a thing in uh, in their toolbox therapeutic toolbox so it sounded really interesting so i said sure i'll I'll do the in, in marketing interview and so i did it in the evening and i spoke to the marketer and he was he told me that he was to find about 150 integrative and functional medicine doctors from around the country to interview to see if this was uh, like a viable thing to even proceed with as a company. But that was the overt reason for the marketing um, survey. There actually was also a secret reason, a second reason, and that was to find one doctor out of the group that got interviewed for this marketing survey to become the beta test site, to actually utilize the fasting mimicking diet in a real life practice situation because up until then it had just been used as a laboratory type of device, you know, and you get a a skewed population, people who are volunteering. It's a different group than just regular people going in and out of a medical office. So I was so fortunate that I was the selected one out of all the people who were interviewed to bring Prolon, which didn't even have a name yet, uh, the fasting mimicking diet into my practice to both be able to use it myself and then to prescribe it and use it with my patients. So you were essentially then, the forefront yeah, doctor in it. I was the, the first medical doctor wow. because everyone else before that was a PhD. So I was the first medical doctor to actually start using, using Prolon. And I gave feedback not about the success that wasn't, you know, in terms of that had already been shown in studies and there were ongoing studies, but in terms of palatability, you know, what did people like? So they made some changes. It turned out that they had 
a product with kale that people either loved or hated. I, I actually really liked it, but when you know how it is, it's like cilantro. Sure. You yeah. either love it or hate it. Right. So right. the people who didn't like it, so they transformed it into kale crackers, which were pretty universally really liked. So yeah. there were little changes like that, and um, they went to a gluten-free model. And, you know, just made like these little kinds of changes based on the feedback from my patients. And I also learned that uh, from my patient population that it was best to do a one month, what I call an, an inflammatory reset diet. Because if you took people who were eating a standard American diet, lots of ultra processed foods, lots of really processed carbs in particular, high sugar content, and they were eating all the time. You know, they were the people that always had little snacks like 24-7. They would just right. get up in the middle of the night, they would snack. It's like they were just always eating something. And then you immediately did a fasting mimicking diet. They did not convert from a glucose-burning function in their body to a fat burning very easily. They were sort of out of practice. They never burned fat. They were just always carb feeding. So it was really hard to get them to go into ketosis easily. And they would be these few hours when they would be hypoglycemic because they couldn't really convert to burning fat and they felt like they were starving. So I found that the best way for, for people who are not eating a healthy diet yet and they're you know not doing time restricted eating they're eating all the time lots of these you know sugary foods that to do what i call the reset diet for one month before in, in implementing the fasting mimicking diet the prolon mm -hmm. i had tremendous success you know people didn't like go crazy on day three and start eating um you know peanut butter and jelly sandwiches they they were able to very easily pretty easily convert from using glucose to burning fat and getting their ketones up and and they did really well. So this is what I now employ and I tell people, you know, even if you're going to do this on your own to at least try a while, even two weeks of going into more time-restricted eating, sort of getting your body used to going for a few hours without eating right. and to stop eating by around 7 p.m. and trying to get away from ultra-processed foods, get rid of all the added sugar foods and just do that for at least two weeks and then go into using prolon. They'll just have such an easier time of it that way. And I personally had stopped eating all that kind of food a long time ago. So for me, I didn't realize when I did it that other people might have that, that transition problem because I immediately went into ketosis when I needed to and I felt great. I, I Two weeks ago, I finished my 15th round with prolon. So I definitely you know, walk the talk and, <laughs> with well, it. I, I, I'm I just, a very I, big, big, big fan of fasting. And I can't really do, I'll tell you the truth. I have tried water fasting in the past just to see if I could do yeah, it. That's, I never got past one day. Never. <laughs> I yeah, can't it, do it. It's, it's, it's but, not easy. I've tried water no, fasting. You yeah, too. Yeah, and, but the fasting mimicking diet is a breeze for me. Yeah. I have, I actually really enjoy doing it. And um, and I just, so I want to make it, I want to make it super clear that, you know, we at Helix and Gene are not endorsed by Prolon or, or this company at all on our end. And I brought this up just because I've used this product and I've had a lot of our patients use it and I'm all for it. And I think this is one of those products that they've actually gotten right. And I don't 
promote anything lightly <laughs> and i i and and yeah. you know when when you and i spoke and i and i just by chance you know figured that you were the person who kind of helped get this thing started i really wanted to talk and touch upon it because you know i do think one of the important things for our listeners and people who are you know who who want to make these changes is for them to know what tools are out there and you know i i love promoting things that i feel very good and comfortable about and you know it has nothing to do with anything else other than that well, I'm so glad you brought that up because I also wanted to say that when I started out doing all of this work with um, what ultimately became El Nutra, it was this was before it really was a true company. It was just at the very, very you know beginning stages of looking into it. And I was a total, complete volunteer. I didn't get paid any money for any of the things that I was doing. And I worked with them for at least a year and a half. And it was all just volunteer. And it was only after they actually became a company and got started that they asked me to be on their medical advisory board. And that was, you know, a surprise. And it was something I was really happy to do. So I want to always make sure in full disclosure that I started out a total volunteer and I just felt that this was really the way to go. It's utilizing the body's innate mechanisms for rejuvenation. It's it's unbelievable. We can talk about all the things that happen when you do enter into a periodic fast and how the body really heals itself. And uh, But I am now a paid medical advisor on the on the medical advisory board. So I want to make sure that I do disclose yeah, and, that. And, and good for you. You know, it's, it's really, it's amazing because once you align yourself with a specific uh, philosophy of life and how you're going to actually look at your treatment for your patients, and it's something that we do out in the East Coast, which is very similar to you guys, is, you know, you start to figure out, you know, you kind of weed out the nonsense. You start to figure out, you know, because there's so much out there. I mean, you just can you click in you know the fasting foods or supplements and and a million things come up and people have no clue as to what's what and and how to weed through things and it's difficult for even professionals like us to weed through them because we have to look at them we have to go through the trials we have to you know go through this whole process I, the average person just has no clue yeah, so it's a paralysis by analysis yeah exactly so and like for us like it's I, when I find something that I see that actually has the proper science behind it and and you know and and it's actually working towards the I guess the mission that we're working towards, I love that. And, and and I'm so happy to see you get involved with them. And, and you know, companies like that, I think, are fantastic. Um, now, Felice, I just want you guys, you you to tell us a little bit. I know you have a book, um, you know, uh, you have a book called PCOSSOS, correct? That's correct. Yes, good. So can you just explain a little bit about what that is? What is? What do you mean by what PCOS, SOS, for people who have no idea what those things are, sure. what the book is about, and just give us a little uh, plug about you know where they can look at this book. And I know it's an Amazon bestseller, so we can kind of see, you know, people can get to read a little bit about what it is that you do as well. Sure. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovary syndrome, and it's the most common endocrine disorder of reproductive age women, although it actually never really goes away, but that's really when it's obviously manifesting. Now, PCOS is like the perfect sort of template for 
dealing with everything that modern humans are dealing with today. It's a combination of every metabolic dysfunction that you could possibly imagine all rolled up into one female body. So it turns out that it's innately been around for, oh, probably since the beginning of mankind as a mild genetic variation where women with that genetic variation didn't quite convert testosterone to estrogen in their ovaries as well as other women. So they had a little surplus of testosterone and a little deficiency of estrogen, but very, very mild. Mm. So they had slightly reduced fertility, just slightly. They still had enough babies, but they had a little survival advantage because they were just a little bit less fertile. So they'd have maybe a few fewer children that would give them more time with each child, less maternal mortality because they were having babies less often. And they had a little extra testosterone. So they were maybe a little bolder, stronger, braver. You know, they just had that, that little, um, that you know that, yeah, that sure. seemed to go along. They've <laughs> actually done studies of women who are um, Olympic champions, and they found a very high percentage actually of PCOS. Yeah. So that little bit of testosterone goes a long way. Yeah, and it does. but it was all fine. I mean, they weren't shaving; they were feminine. But now we took what was just a natural variation. And because of those ubiquitous endocrine disruptors, and the most research has been on BPA, bisphenol A, that when it's present at critical times in development of hormone receptors and hormone functions, that it can alter things and it can actually increase testosterone, alter the ability of the body to eliminate testosterone. So um, it did all kinds of really bad things in women who have this genetic tendency towards PCOS. And so they, instead of having a little bit of extra testosterone, they'll have very high amounts of testosterone to actually create androgenization, sort of masculinization type things. Like they'll get facial hair, they'll have androgenic alopecia, which is sort sure. of like a, the female version of male pattern baldness, recalcitrant, really difficult to treat cystic acne. And then because of these hormonal imbalances, they have irregular cycles, they have very high rates of infertility. And because the that you then add on the standard American diet, this is sort of like the nail in the coffin yeah, for yeah, ultimate sure. <laughs> metabolic health, is that they develop almost universally, and this has now been initially hypothesized by my friend who lives in Australia, Professor Kelton Tremellen, but then it was actually proven by researchers in China a couple of years ago that women with PCOS have leaky gut syndrome. We're back to leaky gut. To leaky and gut. that yeah. creates oh, systemic gut. inflammation. They also have um, dysfunction of their receptors on their innate immune cells. So they're like little powder kegs. So their immune cells explode with their inflammatory contents at a lower threshold. So they develop more chronic systemic inflammation. So they have like this whole array of, of issues that then sort of feed forward and exacerbate the underlying inflammatory state, the insulin resistance that is really sort of um, standard now in women with PCOS. So they have all these metabolic dysfunctions. They have fertility problems. They also have gut problems. So they have higher rates of leaky gut. And because leaky gut uh, and irritable bowel syndrome goes along with that. And because of that, they also have higher rates of autoimmune disease, particularly Hashimoto's thyroiditis, although also others like like lupus, and they have higher rates as well of endometriosis and uterine fibroids, and all of that can be happening in one woman. And then because of their 
this chronic state of inflammation and insulin resistance. And because they have dysfunction of estrogen and lower levels of estrogen because of the early age exposures and critical timing exposures of endocrine disruptors like BPA, their estrogen receptors are not working properly. And estrogen is very critical to mitochondrial function, those uh, those generators of energy, those little energy burning factories of our cells. The mitochondria in women with PCOS are not working properly. So they are very great at storing and making fat and really bad at burning fat. So this this is actually where I also incorporate the um, Prolon, the fasting mimicking diet in my therapeutic program for women with PCOS. But in reality, almost anyone who has any sort of metabolic dysfunction will actually benefit from my program to help women with PCOS. Because as we all know, if it's, it's not like unique to one specific group. It's just that this specific group, women with PCOS, sort of have it all in one package. They have all these reproductive and metabolic dysfunctions and mood problems and sleep problems and joint problems because you know estrogen is not right and they have all this inflammation. So they have so many things rolled up. And so we have to really approach everything both symptomatically and looking at the underlying root causes, which is never addressed by giving women birth control pills, spironolactone and metformin, which is the standard the standard treatment by the conventional world, which in no way actually gets to the underlying issues. And birth control pills should really never be used in women with PCOS because birth control pills actually aggravate a lot of the very fundamental things that are going on with women with PCOS, like uh, low levels of nitric oxide, which is a key redox signaling agent. It actually helps to reduce inflammation. Women with on birth control pills have low levels of nitric oxide produced, and so too women with PCOS. So the last thing you want to do is put those two together. Women on birth control pills have higher rates of blood clotting, which also occurs in women with PCOS. So you don't want to put them together. So you can go down the line. You know, insulin resistance, hypertension, all those things are exacerbated by birth control pills and are in higher higher rates in women with PCOS. So it really should not be used because you're actually increasing a lot of their risk issues. That's fascinating. So Felice, before, you know, we, I mean, like I said, we can sit here and this is so fascinating and talk about these things for hours. Um, but, and, you know, we definitely, we would, we want to have you back again for sure to tackle a lot more subjects that we just didn't have time for today in any sense. But what I want to do is, uh, can you, if, when, so, if someone wants to reach out to you, um, they want to get your book or they want to get in touch with you or use your services, where would they go? Can you give us a little, uh, you know, give them a little direction as to how people can contact you? Sure. So my, my book, which is all about restoring rhythms and hormones and happiness is available, as you mentioned, on Amazon. It's also on barnesandnoble.com and other sites. And so that's it's very easy to obtain. In terms of myself, I'm one of those old-fashioned doctors. I still have a brick-and-mortar practice. So I, I see it. patients every day in person. I treat everyone as the unique individuals they are. So that means I, you actually have to see them. Unless you live in California, where I could also do telemedicine and I can do just for telemedicine in other states other than California I can talk about general things but I can't like specifically treat people if they don't see me because unfortunately we have state licenses not national licenses for doctors but my practice is in Irvine California it's called the integrative medical group of Irvine so it's very easy to find and the website is 
integrative mgi.com and then i also have my little personal website where i post lots of my blogs and connections to articles i've been quoted in and uh, some of my other you know productions that i've been in and that is my name but it has my middle initial stuck in there so it's felice l gersh md.com and I'm also easily found on, on Twitter and, and Instagram. And so uh, I'm, I try not to hide too well. So it's no, not too hard to find me. That's fantastic. And, you know, f- and if you guys have any questions um, for Felice and, you, you know, re- you reach out to us, John can tell you where you can get in touch with us as well and to listen to this podcast and to, you know, any other questions and we can help put you in touch with her as well. So, John, if you want to go. Sure. Ahead. Yeah. Uh, for the podcast, it's on uh, hgwellnessgroup.com slash podcast. We're also on Spotify and iTunes currently. Uh, and that's Helix and Gene uh, Wellness Podcast uh, with the ampersand. So not and, it's Helix ampersand Gene Wellness Podcast. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram at Helix and Gene uh, where we post really cool videos and um, we, we put up uh, uh, alerts for upcoming podcasts and things like that. So you can uh, check out our feeds as well. Yeah, and subscribe to our podcast and you'll get all the new information and everything that's out there. Um, and I think it's important to say that, you know, everything that we do is uh, internally funded and we do everything ourselves. We're not uh, endorsed by anybody. And, you know, everything we put out there is for the listener to really enjoy and see. And it's coming from a want to have an open forum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we, we create an open forum for people such as Felice, who are leading experts in the field of what they do to come here and really express their opinion and talk about, you know, all of the excellent points that we went over today and how every person can help better themselves. So Felice, I really want to thank you so much. This was truly an honor. It was really a fun, fun technical session. <laughs> I learned a lot today. I will tell you that My brain much. is stimulated. <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot today from you. That was fantastic. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to having you back on and uh, we'll let the listeners know when the next time that we do that will be. So Felice, thank you very much for joining and uh it was excellent talking to you well it was really fun i look forward to continuing the dialogue thanks Thank please have a great day take care thanks